0: Sin, my sickness and my pain. a healing, cleansing stream. Shed on Calvary, those precious blood stains were made there just for me. For all my sins, my sickness, and my pain. When I need healing, I claim those precious blood stains.
1: It's a great, great song. I like that one, too. I could have sat and listened to at least two more of those. I was getting into that. I I don't know about the preaching tonight, but I was sure enjoying that music, amen? That was good, boy. If they had another one, they could have came back out and done it. I'm always afraid to ask these guys to do that stuff because I'm afraid I'll catch them off guard. But boy, I could have used another one. I don't know about you. That was good. All right, James chapter 3, James chapter 3. We're probably going to close this thing down tonight on this subject, When Should We Hold Our Tongues According to Scripture. Actually, tonight we're going to be looking at when should we open our mouths. That'll be a change, won't it? James chapter 3, James chapter 3, we'll read just a couple of those verses and then we'll uh, touch on some things and move right on into our new material. But uh, boy, we're going to talk about when should we open our mouths and uh, i I don't think it'll be anything probably you've never heard before, but it'll certainly be something that we can certainly heed and, and uh, better ourselves by doing. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, the Bible says, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths, that they may obey us. And we turn about their whole body, behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature and it is set on fire of hell. Well, we've been talking about when to hold your tongue and we said, well, when you're tempted to flatter a wicked person. If you're supposed to be working in the heat of anger you should hold your tongue when you don't have all the facts or when you're tempted to joke about sin you ought to hold your tongue if you would be ashamed of your words later you ought to hold your tongue or before we make a vow or promise we should uh, that uh, we're not going to keep or when you're tempted to tell an outright lie or if your words will damage someone else's reputation or destroy a friendship you ought to hold your tongue When we're feeling critical or when it's time to listen, we ought to hold our tongue. And finally, we concluded by saying, well, when we don't have anything really worth saying, we ought to hold our tongue. Well, tonight we're going to talk about when should we open our mouths. And so it's been a number of weeks we've been dwelling on this when not to, tonight we're going to look at when we should. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and do so. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for the music. I appreciate that choir what a blessing they are, and then, Lord, the quartet tonight, or the specials this morning, we're just so grateful, Father, for the music program here, or just how it just uh, focuses our attention on you, and Lord, how we're able then to prepare our hearts for the message, and to just ready ourselves to receive what you'd have for us, or how it prepares my heart even to share, and I just pray that I'd be open to your leadership, Lord, I just want to be a conduit means by which your voice can travel through and ultimately reach your people. Lord, I have nothing to say except it come from you. Lord, anything that I would say in my flesh would certainly not be profitable. So fill me with your spirit and allow me to be your mouthpiece tonight. May you take these simple truths and a simple lesson. May we apply it to our lives. May we be better for having done so. Now bless your people. Lord, be with those that are sick tonight. I know there are a number of folks that are not feeling well. Meet their needs as well. We love you. We need you. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so when should we open our mouths? Well, here we go. First of all, we ought to open our mouths to confess sin. We ought to do that. I'm not just saying it's the right thing to do when you do it. I'm saying that you ought to make a point of opening your mouth to confess sin. I ought to make a point of doing that as well. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Very familiar passage and probably a definitive passage in this particular area. It says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, from Texas history comes a story of the conversion of Sam Houston. Um, at the time... Uh, the Texas hero was really just called the Old Drunk. That's what his name was. That's what they often referred to him as, the Old Drunk. While he was uh, governor of Tennessee, his wife left him. And in despair, he resigned as governor, and he tried to escape his problems by going to live among the Cherokee Indians. He stayed drunk most of the time. It's said that the Indians, as they would walk through the forest, they'd have to move him out of the path where he laid, and he was just there in a drunken stupor. Later he went on to Texas and he became the great hero of the Texas Revolution when he routed General Santa Anna's army. Remember Houston's battle cry? Remember the Alamo? Well, that particular phrase helped to win independence for Texas. He married the daughter of a Baptist preacher and he later, later trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior, but he still had some of his old tendencies. That old flesh just kind of bothered him from time to time, and one day he was riding along a trail, and his horse stumbled along, and Houston kind of, kind of at that point, the, the horse stumbled along, and so did he in that regard, and he just kind of cursed. He just kind of, at the same time, kind of simultaneously cursed. He cussed, kind of reverting back to his old habits. Immediately, Sam Houston gets, gets convicted of his sins. He j- immediately gets off of his horse. He kneels down right there on the trail. He cries out to God for forgiveness right on the spot. He'd received Christ already. That wasn't the issue. He already knew him as Savior. But the problem was he was learning to live his life in fellowship with God moment by moment. As soon as the Holy Spirit made Sam Houston aware of his sin, as soon as he convicted him, as soon as he was aware that, man, I shouldn't have done that, he was in a position of confession. Well, I'll tell you what, the truth is, is we ought to open our mouths in confession more often. Like Sam Houston, we ought to get to the place where we're very sensitive of sin in our lives, and the moment we are made aware of sin in our lives, we immediately confess that sin. I mean, the passage in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sins. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we get the idea that God just kind of does that. No, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That ought to be our practice. Immediate Confession. You know, it's a good thing to confess sin to God. But you know what? It's also beneficial to confess sin to others. In James chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So many times when in the midst of our sin, we hurt people. We ought to confess that to people. We ought to share that with others. We need to understand that our relationship with Jesus Christ is often dependent upon our relationship with those around us. So many times we get the idea that we can be right with God, but not right with others. And that's just not biblical. I'm not saying that everybody's going to love you and everybody's going to like you and everybody's going to be oh, really excited to see you every moment of every day. But the fact is, is we should do nothing to hurt or harm others or to create conflict in the lives of others. If we do that, and it's certainly, if, in, if indeed it is a violation of Scripture at some point, we need to not only confess to God that we've sinned against Him, but we need to go to the person and say, we have confessed, we, we confess because we've sinned against you. Confession's good. The act of confession is really medicinal. It's good medicine. In Psalm chapter 32, verse 3, the psalmist says, When I kept silent, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. And somebody can say, well, that has to do with praise. I I believe that we could associate that we could certainly apply that. But let me tell you something else. When you keep quiet, when you should be confessing, I promise you, uh, your uh, bones are going to wax old through roaring all the day long. See, there is nothing that takes the joy out of life any more than unconfessed sin weighing on the conscience. And today, we the Bible talks about neither could they blush. And unfortunately, it seems that even in the house of God and amongst God's people, there's an element there where we do not blush, where we find ourselves in a place where we can sin, but yet it's just, that's the way it is. You just got to learn to accept it. You just have to deal with that. Almost like it's someone else's job to deal with it, not ours. But may I say that there ought to be an element of of shame to sin, and there ought to be that weight and burden of sin, and we ought to feel the need to confess our sins. So, boy, i tell you what, you want to talk about a need, or should I say, to open our mouths when we ought to do so? We ought to be opening our mouths consistently and continually to confess sin. Not only that, but number two, we ought to open our mouths to encourage others. To encourage others. Now, the word encourage is a, a neat word. Uh, what it means is to give courage to. To give or increase confidence of success. To inspire with courage, spirit, or strength of mind. To embolden, to animate, to incite, to inspire. It's encouragement. Encouragement. Take your Bible, turn over to the book of Numbers, please. Chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. That's all the way back in the Old Testament, a long ways from where we are. If you get to Genesis, you've gone too far. Chapter 20, Numbers. We're going to begin reading in verse 7. We're going to read about a man by the name of Moses. A pretty popular character in the Word of God. The Bible says in verse 7, beginning there in verse 7, we're going to read through verse 12, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. Now earlier there had been an incident where they were in need of water as well, and can anybody tell me what Moses was commanded to do in order to bring forth water? He was to what? Strike the rock. That's right. He was a strike it. Now, in this particular case, we read here in the passage that he's being told to speak to it. And I think that's extremely important. Notice again, he says, take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water. Isn't that interesting? His water. I I don't have time to get into all that, but that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, I don't know about you, but I gotta believe there's some association with the rock. And I'm not talking about the one that's in the movies. I'm talking about the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. His water, amen. amen. But nonetheless, look at it, it goes on to say, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and there be strength. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as He commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice. And the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. Well, I don't know, he didn't really obey God, did he? I mean, in this particular case... He didn't speak to the rock, he struck the rock, not just once, but now he strikes it twice. I find it very interesting, and I have a whole message around this, but the water came forth even though he rebelled and disobeyed against God. It's amazing sometimes we look at situations where we're watching ministries grow, and yet it's very obvious that they're compromising the word of God. And we say, "Where? In, how in the world are they seeing results? Why is it that they're growing? How's come people are still being fed in some cases? How's come they're still meeting some needs? Why is there still successes being seen in a ministry when it's clearly violating scripture? Maybe because God's that gracious and that, that wonderful. That even in the midst of rebellion, even when we fail to follow through, even when we don't do exactly what he says many times, he still meets needs in our lives and those around us. Success never equals obedience. But obedience will always equal success. Nonetheless, we continue reading, and it says, it says in verse 9, And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. Watch now. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Can you imagine now? Moses, of all people, literally the one God used to speak to Pharaoh, to bring the plagues and ultimately deliver Israel out of the hand of Egypt. He brings brings them through the wilderness wanderings. Now they're on the brink of entering into the promised land, and he strikes the rock twice, disobeys God this time, and God says, because of your unbelief, and you failed to sanctify me before the congregation... You will not go into the promised land now. That would seem like a pretty large consequence, wouldn't it? Do you know that Moses was not permitted to go into the promised land? I'm just going to throw this out. I don't know. It's not in the lesson or message. But parents, when you tell your kids what the consequences of some action is going to be, and you don't follow through, you're not doing them any favors. Just thought I'd add that. Moses was not permitted to go. Listen, that, to me, that seems pretty harsh. After that long of faithful service, that committed service, God says, nope, you showed an element of unbelief. You will not enter into the promised land. Boy, I'll tell you what, that's a mess. I don't know about you, but I'd have been pretty upset about that if I was Moses. That would have broken my heart. That would have been very weighing heavy on my soul. Well, Moses is instructed to speak to the rock. Instead, again, out of anger, he doesn't. He smokes it. Now he's not permitted to go into the promised land. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 28, we're going to see that God goes on to tell Moses some other things. Although he's not permitted to enter the promised land, he was given the opportunity to view the land from top of Mount Pisgah. So God's going to permit him now to go high up into the mount and look over the land. As a matter of fact, he's going to do this And he's going to see it from the the, the north and from the west, the south and the east. He's going to see it all the way around. He's going to be able to see the land, but he's not going to be able to actually enter into it. But before taking that final journey up into the Mount Pisgah, notice what he's told to do in Deuteronomy 3.28. Turn there if you would. Let's go ahead and turn there. It's very important because I think, again, it goes to our point here, encouraging others. Notice what Moses is told to do. In spite of the fact that I'm sure Moses' heart is broken. Even though Moses is probably like, wow, I can't believe I messed up that bad. Oh, man, I've spent all these years leading and guiding the children of Israel, and now I don't even get to go in the promised land. Look at what God tells him to do. Deuteronomy 3.28. But charge Joshua and encourage him, and strengthen him. For he shall go over before this people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. So he tells Moses here, he says, you're going to charge Joshua, or you're going to commission him. In essence, he's saying, you're going to pass the torch in the eyes of the people to him. And along the way, God makes sure he says, and encourage him. Encourage him. You charge Joshua and encourage him. Now, how valuable and important must encouragement be seeing God purposely told Moses to encourage Joshua? Think about that for a minute. I mean, we already said that encouragement is to give courage, to give or increase confidence of success. I mean, I've been leading these people for 40 years and now, I'm not going to be able to go into the promised land. By the way, Joshua, you're going to lead them into the promised land. By the way, congregation, Joshua's going to be your leader. And God says, that's not enough. You've got to encourage him. You've got to convince him of the success that will be his. You've got to help him understand that he's going to be victorious. You've got to help him to realize that his confidence level can be high, because I'll be with him. Boy, you've got to encourage him. How necessary is encouragement in each and every one of our lives then? On May the 24th, 1965, a a 13-and-a-half-foot boat slipped quietly out of the marina at Fallmouth, Massachusetts. I always say that wrong, so don't laugh at me. My kids are like, say it again, Dad. I'm like, ah, shut up. Because I can't say it. I'm not even going to try to say it again. It would be the, listen, it would be the smallest craft ever to make the voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to England. 1965. A 13 and a half foot boat going all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to England. The Tinkerbell is what it was called. And it was piloted by Robert Manry, he was a copy editor for the Cleveland Plain dealer. He had been there in that position for 10 years at a desk. And he figured, well, you know what? I've had enough boredom in my life. So I'm going to go ahead and fulfill my greatest dreams. I'm going to sail this little boat across the Atlantic. Manry was afraid. He wasn't really afraid of the ocean itself as much as he was afraid of those that were going to try to talk him out of doing it. It had never been done before. This isn't just, you know, taking a a cruise across the lake. I mean, we're talking about the Atlantic Ocean. So he didn't share that dream with too many people. He didn't tell too many that he was going to do it. He told some relatives, and he especially confided in his wife, Virginia. Well, the trip wasn't pleasant in the least. He spent nights of sleeplessness trying to cross shipping lanes without getting run over or sunk. Weeks at sea caused his food to become tasteless, and the prolonged loneliness led to, this, led to terrifying hallucinations. His rudder broke three times during the course of this journey. Storms swept him overboard. If it hadn't been for the fact that he'd been roped off, if he hadn't been tied off by rope, he'd have been lost at sea. Finally, after 78 days alone at sea, he sailed into Fallmouth, and that is correct, it's the same exact word, Fallmouth, Cornwall, England. 78 days later, he made the journey between June and August of 1965. And during those nights, he had wandered about, he'd thought over and over and over about what he would do when he arrived there in England. He expected to simply check into a hotel and eat a dinner alone, and the next morning see if, well, perhaps the Associated Press might be interested in his story. But he was in for a big surprise. Word had spread of his approach. To his amazement, there were 300 vessels with horns blasting, and they escorted the Tinkerbell into port. There were over 40,000 people standing, screaming, and cheering as he entered the dock. Robert Manry The copy editor turned dreamer. Became an overnight hero. His story was told around the world, but he could have never done it alone. Could have never done it. Standing on the deck was even a greater hero in his mind. There was Virginia, his wife. She had encouraged him when others would have discouraged him. She gave him an attaboy when he needed it. She told him it was possible when he needed it. She said, you can do it. I don't care what anybody else says. You can do it. William Arthur Ward made this statement. He said, flatter me, and I may not believe you. Criticize me, and I may not like you. Ignore me, and I may not forgive you. Encourage me, and I will not forget you. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you realize this, but encouragement is an extremely powerful tool. Boy, it can make or break a man. It can make or break a woman. Encouragement is so valuable and so important. The Duke of Wellington The British military leader who defeated Napoleon at Waterloo was not a very easy man to get along with, nor was he easy to serve under. He was brilliant, but he was also extremely demanding. He wasn't one that really showered a lot of praise on his subordinates or many compliments. Yet even Wellington realized that his methods left something to be desired in the end. In his old age, a young lady asked him if Well, she said, what, if anything, would you do differently if you had life to live over again? Wellington thought for a moment, and then he said this. He said, I'd give more praise. I'd give more praise. What he's saying is, I would encourage my men more. I would tell them I appreciate them more. I would praise them more. The Bible says in Hebrews, turn if you would to Hebrews 10, 24, please. We're very familiar with Hebrews 10, 25. Not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But notice what verse 24 says. Hebrews ten twenty four says, And let us consider one another to revoke unto love, And to good works. You know what that says to me? I don't know what it says to you. It says, encourage one another to me. I mean, to provoke unto love, to provoke unto good works, to encourage one another in those things. It's not enough to simply do a good job yourself. It's not enough to simply be a good Christian in your own eyes or in the eyes of those around you. To be the kind of Christian God intends you to be, to, to, God intends me to be, we've got to be encouraging others. Let us consider one another to provoke and to love and to do good works. Well, you say, well, yeah, we can't. it sounds like we're forever to, be, to hold our tongues. It sounds like we're, we're to really be careful before we speak. You are, but let me tell you something. You ought to be very liberal in your speech when it comes to confessing sin. You ought to be very free to give encouragement to others. Number three, I mean, when should we open our mouths? Well, to praise the Lord. to praise the Lord. We ought to open our mouths to praise the Lord. Turn to Psalm chapter 150. A very, very powerful, very practical passage in the book of Psalm that speaks of this element of praising God. Psalm 150 uses the word praise quite a bit here. Psalm 150. We'll read the whole chapter. Six verses. Some of you got pretty nervous, didn't you? We're going to be here a while. I didn't say Psalm. What's the long one? Anybody remember? Yeah, I didn't say 119. How many verses? Anybody remember? We have a genius among us. Psalm 150, verse 1, notice what it says. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with the stringed instruments and organs. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Well, I don't know about you, but it seems pretty clear to me we ought to be praising Him. Now listen, we ought to open our mouths wide and we ought to lift them up and praise the Lord. Man, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, Amen! Amen! Glory to God. Praise the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't know, but sometimes I'll sit up here and hear somebody say, Hey, man, and I get fired up. I think, Praise God. That's good. I mean, we go to ball games and we say, Woo! We go to church and we say, Man, we ought to be praising the Lord. Listen, I know some people aren't quite as vocal as others, and that's fine. But I know some of you are real vocal. And it would be good to praise God every once in a while. matter of fact, as much as possible, we ought to be praising Him all the time. The British minister, W.E. Sangster, he began to lose his voice and mobility in the mid-1950s. He had a disease that caused progressive muscular atrophy. As he recognized that the end was near, he threw himself into his writing and praying. In the midst of his suffering, he pleaded, let me stay in the struggle, Lord. I don't mind if I can no longer be a general, but give me just a regiment to lead. Sangster's voice eventually failed completely, and his legs became totally and utterly useless. On Easter morning, just a few weeks before his death, he took a pen and he Shakily wrote his daughter a letter in it. He made this statement. He said, It is terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout, He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. I don't know about you, but I was sitting reading that the other day and I went, That's powerful. That's powerful. That's powerful. I found myself saved three times. I'm going to tell you something. I don't know about you, but he, I mean, listen to that again. He said just a few weeks before his death, he couldn't speak. He couldn't even walk. He said, it's terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice with which to shout. He is risen. But it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. How often are we guilty of that? What is it about us that leaves us without any shout? How is it that we can serve a God that saved our soul from hell? How is it that we can see His evidence in our lives and yet we have no shout in us? What's wrong with us? May God help us to get the shout. Well, I'll tell you, if we start talking about when should we open our mouths, well, to confess sin, to encourage others, to praise the Lord. And finally, you knew this one had to be in there somewhere, right? To warn sinners. We ought to open our mouths to warn sinners. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen through 20. Again, a familiar passage when it comes to this element of the Great Commission, we often coin it. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Edwin Cooper was famous across America. Yet almost no one really knew his real name. Coming from a family of circus clowns, Cooper began performing before audiences when he was just nine years old. After a stint with the Barnum and Bailey Circus, he became a a fixture on television in the 1950s as none other than Bozo the Clown. You may have heard of him. In addition, he... Uh, in addition to entertaining both young and old, Cooper had a message for his buddies and partners every week, as he would call them. And here was the message. He would say, get checked for cancer. The only problem was that Cooper was so busy working that he neglected to follow his own advice. By the time his cancer was discovered, it was too late for it to be treated Edwin Cooper died at just 41 years of age from a disease that he had warned so many others to watch out for. You know, sin is far more deadly than the most aggressive and fast-growing cancer that there is. See, sin kills and destroys everything it touches, and unfortunately, so many times, everything else around it. From the fall of Adam in the garden of Eden right up to the present day, the truth is is that sin continues to take no prisoners at all. Sin is not a friend, even as the devil's no friend to us. Sin is our enemy. And so is Satan. There's nothing good about it. The truth is is that the purpose behind every single thing that Satan does is to destroy. The Bible tells us in the book of John, chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief cometh not before to steal and to kill and to destroy. Do you know that Satan hates everything and anything that's good? The devil brings destruction to everything within his reach. Well, I know he makes sin look good, and I understand that he tries to make it appealing, but the truth is, it's all a ploy, because in the end, his only goal is to wreck and ruin lives and relationships. When we look at sin the way God looks at sin, we'll never find anything amusing about it. There'll be nothing humorous or nothing funny about it. We'll not make it the subject of jokes and We won't certainly share it with others. We'll not allow ourselves to be tempted to get, you know, just a little bit closer, just in order to see if it's still safe. You know, let's test the waters. Let's see how close we can get to sin. Let's see how close we can get to the edge before it actually costs us. Now we won't do that if we recognize and see sin the way God does. In Acts chapter 20, verse 31, the Bible says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. The Apostle Paul is speaking there and he's letting them know that I have spent night and day telling you, sharing with you the truth of the gospel, begging you, pleading with you. I shed tears for three years. I ceased not to warn every single person. Night and day with tears. A passion for souls. A desire to see people saved. Toward everybody he came in contact with. In Psalm chapter 126, verses 5 and 6, we read, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. You know, like Edwin Cooper... We need to warn everybody we possibly can about the scourge of sin. But in the process, don't forget to examine your own life. Well, how quick and how easy it is to see the sins of others, but fail to see our own. And that takes us all the way back to confessing our sin. Full circle. But we need to open our mouths to confess our sins. We need to open our mouth to encourage others. We need to open our mouth to praise the Lord. And finally, we need to open our mouths to warn sinners and, in the process, make sure that we're heeding our own warnings. The tongue. What a mess it can be, what problems it can provide. But on the other hand, it can be a true blessing as if it's used the proper way. May God help us to speak when we ought to speak and to do the right things with our tongue. I don't know, maybe there's some sin that you need to confess tonight. Maybe there's someone you ought to encourage this evening. Maybe even as a parent, there's a child that's living across the country that you need to write a note to or text or to call or email and say, hey, I just want you to know how happy I am and proud I am of how hard you've been working lately and what you've been doing with your life. Praise and encouragement. Maybe you need to praise the Lord tonight. You've been a little bit discouraged. Maybe you found yourself in the depths of despair. You've started to question whether God's even good anymore. Maybe you just need to praise him tonight. And for sure, every last one of us need to be more active in telling others about him and sharing Christ with others. We need to open our mouth and warn sinners tonight. Oh, may God help us tonight to open our mouths when we ought to and to shut them when we should as well. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together and We ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and work in our lives. Thank you for these that have gathered tonight. Lord, just some simple thoughts tonight about when to open our mouths. After all the warnings to shut them, to hold our tongues, now we want to loose them for your purpose and your glory. Father, help us, Lord, to be quick to confess sin. Father, help us to be quick to encourage others and to praise you and quick to warn sinners bless us now we pray we'll thank you in christ's name amen let's all stand every head bowed every eye closed music plays you come as the lord directs and leads How many lives have been destroyed by criticism? Well, may God help us to hold our tongues in that situation, but instead loose them to encourage others. Can you imagine if only encouragement came out of your mouth? How different your marriage would be? How different your